0: If you're like me, you've become used to the words of Luke 2. I'm going to read them again in the NIV, which is going to be our text this morning, and read a little further than Linus read this morning. Luke 2, 8 through 20, if you want to follow along. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which are just as they had been told. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word, when it is heard, when it is spoken, when it is read, is profitable because it is your word. And and with your Holy Spirit in our hearts, it changes us. As we approach this scripture that we've heard countless times, I know that our hearts can be uh, iced over, our ears deaf. But Father, open our eyes again anew to the wonder that the shepherds experienced that night and the amazing events that Mary pondered. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We've heard this story so many times that we are at times underwhelmed by its significance. It's read so routinely at Christmas, you'll probably hear it at least a dozen times before the end of the holiday season. Our eyes can glaze over when we hear it, and we can say, But the angel is clear in verse 10. I bring you good news, which will cause great joy. And if it doesn't bring us great joy, then perhaps we don't understand why the news was good. Or we've become so used to the good news that it's lost some of its power. Whichever the case, I believe if we examine what's really going on here and we cut through the churchy words and get to the heart of the story, it has power through the Holy Spirit to either help us understand the joy of the salvation for perhaps the first time, or it has the power to restore to us and return to us the joy of our salvation. Whatever is happening here, Mary and the shepherds get it. And we know that because of verses 19 and 20. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as had been told them. The responses are different. Mary's response is inward. She treasured the news of these events and pondered them. The shepherds' response, by contrast, was outward. Glorifying and praising God. Verse 17 tells us that they spread the word concerning Jesus. Similarly, there should be a response of inward and outward response in us. Now, either that response is going to be one of saying, I want nothing to do with this Jesus stuff. Or it's going to be one of extreme devotion and love for what he's done. What it cannot be is meh. And I just said in a very rough-hewn way what what C.S. Lewis said best when he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Jesus is not moderately important. And sometimes we become so used to him, so used to the gospel, so used to grace, that we say, meh. And so we need to return to the glory that God showed this night in Bethlehem. So I want to ask a couple of questions this morning. Why did the shepherds respond with praising? And why did Mary respond with pondering? First, why did the shepherds respond with praising? In asking this question, we're also asking, why should our response be one of praise? What is going on here that would elicit such a response? Or, as the song Angels We Have Heard on High puts it, Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? Well, that isn't the first response that they had. They don't immediately go, Oh, praise the Lord! There's an angel! And phew, phew, there's a bunch of angels. Praise the Lord! That's not their first response. The NIV says their first response was fear. It says, they were terrified. I actually like the King James Version here because it says sore afraid, and that is just a really poetic phrase, isn't it? They weren't just afraid. They were sore afraid. And that really properly reflects the Greek here. Because if you translated it literally, it says they were frightened with great fear. Many times when you see someone or you encounter an angel in Scripture, the angel says, fear not, or do not be afraid. Why? Well, for one, something supernatural is happening before them, and that's pretty natural. If you saw some some creature jump out from the bushes, you would be afraid. But there's more than that going on here. They should be afraid. Why? Because while angels are ministering spirits, they are also dispensers of the wrath of God. And sometimes that message that they deliver is not a message of deliverance. It's a a message of justice. If you remember, when Balaam goes to curse the people of God during the Exodus, an angel he cannot see gets in the way, and his donkey veers out of the path because there's an angel standing in the middle of the road with a sword ready to strike Balaam dead. And also, another example from Scripture is Joshua, before he fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, he met a man with a sword, and he asked him, it was a drawn sword, and he asked this, this, this man, who, are you for us or against us? To which the angel said, neither, rather, I indeed come as captain of the host of the Lord. And what was Joshua's response? Oh, that's, that's nice. no. His response was that he fell on his face and he bowed down and he said to him, what is my Lord to say to his servant? A fearful response is natural. But why the shepherds in particular? Why should they be sore afraid? Well, because the nature of a shepherd's job changed over the years. Early on, A shepherd's job was a fairly decent profession, but by the time Jesus arrives, and things have have gotten a little bit more, not not necessarily industrial, um, because it's not industrial, but life had moved more towards the cities, and shepherds, by nature of their job, were to be in the fields almost continually. This kept them from ceremonial purity. And because this kept them from ceremonial purity, and the Pharisees had risen in prominence, they were looked down upon as unclean people. And because the profession was seen as an unclean profession, a dirty job, someone had to do it tended to attract people who were of less- than-sterling character. And so it became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The shepherds begin to, to collect people who uh, probably had a few warrants out for their arrest. So when the angel appears before them, when this dispenser of God's justice appears before them, you're not dealing with a bunch of farmers in robes. But the collection of shepherds were sure to contain at least a few guys with a record, a past. And when they saw the angels, they had to believe maybe their time was up. And maybe, just maybe, God had come to dispense that justice and wrath upon them. You would be terrified too. But instead, the angel says, Do not be afraid. And of all the do not be afraid that the angels have spoken throughout the Old Testament, this do not be afraid is perhaps one of the greatest do not be afraid of Scripture because this is going to give the reason why they should be eternally secure, eternally joyful, and why their fear should die. Because the angel signals the end of eternal fear. Verse 10, he tells them, I have good news that will cause great joy. And the Greek here is just as emphatic as the Greek for the fear. In other words, as fearful as they are, when they fully grasp what the angel's about to tell them, they're going to be equally elated. And what does he tell them? Verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Messiah the Lord. Those are some amazing phrases. A Savior has been born. He is Messiah, or Christ the Lord. But I think the most amazing phrase in this verse for the shepherds would have been a different one. It's the phrase, to you. It's not just that he is Christ the Lord, and it's not just that he's the Savior. That's all fine and dandy, because to them, he probably was the Savior of the good people of Israel. But these shepherds, these 'er ne'er-do-wells, these men of less than sterling character, the angel said, he's born to you. And they're probably looking around like, me? Surely this angel, Graham, is sent to the wrong people. You know, there are, there are priests and there's synagogues and there's good people in Bethlehem. Are you sure you want to send this message to us? Us. I mean, Ezra over there, he, he carjacked a camel the other week, last week. So we're not the, the greatest company of folks here. Are you sure you mean to you? And that's the profound beauty of this. Now, they're not saying any of that because they're probably all catatonic, but the angel almost anticipates their disbelief, and, that this, and the joy uh, at, which will be for all people is for them too. And he says in verse 12, this will be a sign to you, again, to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. In other words, if you don't believe all I'm saying, and you don't believe this good news is for you, go into Bethlehem, find the baby. He's going to be in a manger. He's going to be wrapped in cloths. Then while the lead shepherd is probably trying to collect his thoughts and his jaw from off the ground, an explosion of angels happens in the sky. Now, just like we see the shepherds as farmers in robes instead of a bunch of shady characters, think bikers, think um, a bunch of biker gang shady characters who might hotwire your camel, when you weren't looking, we see the angels as these kind of gentle beings with long, glowing, flowing blonde hair that sing very nice and high with flowy robes. But that's not who these guys are. In every translation, it says, they are the multitude of the heavenly host. Well, that just sounds nice. The heavenly host. Until you see that host means army. This isn't the choir of heaven. These aren't the choir boys. This, this, these aren't the Boy Scouts of heaven. This is not the hippie musicians of heaven. These are the marines of heaven. These are the guys that God sends to level the walls of Jericho. These are the guys that took out the army of Egypt. These guys have taken out some of the greatest armies of the greatest kingdoms of the world. And here they are, once again, appearing in the sky, a massive force before the shepherds, who are probably quaking with fear yet again. And they're thinking, it's a trap. He's lulled us in with these promise of good news and now here come the angels of heaven the army's about ready to slaughter us but they don't they do something wholly unexpected instead of drawing their swords they sing imagine a bunch of marines marching into a village and instead of drawing their weapons they start singing look at verses 13 and 14 suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his fear re- favor rests now i have to tell you the word here for praise can just mean that they spoke their praise but it can also mean that they sang and because this follows both the song of mary and the song of zechariah and because it's set off as poetry I like to think that these guys were singing. And they're singing of what? They're not singing of the wrath of God. They're singing of peace. Angels, we have heard on high continues, and it says this. What the gladsome tidings be which inspired your heavenly song. The tidings that inspired the shepherds to praise and should inspire us to praise is just this, the gospel. It's the gospel. This is what verse 14 means. The angels are the unfallen creatures that enjoy the unbroken and untarnished glory of God in heaven. That's what it means. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And that the angels provide that glory to God, reflecting it back and praising him perfectly. Yet, while on earth there is open rebellion against God, but this night, one is born who will bring peace. What kind of peace? King James renders this, peace on earth, goodwill to man. And that can sound very generic. A lot of people who don't follow Jesus love that phrase, peace on earth, goodwill to man, because it sounds like human peace and just kindness to each other. Just be kind to each other. There should be world peace. Peace. All sounds so lovely, but that's not exactly what this means. <laughs> in the NIV, it's translated peace towards those who are favored. Basically, what this means is for those who believe in Jesus, there is peace from the wrath of God. In other words, this army will never hunt you down, this army will never destroy you because of what Christ is going to do on the cross. And that is good news. On November 9th, 1989, my family watched on TV as in East and West Germany came together and people started bringing hammers and sledgehammers and knocking down the Berlin Wall. How many of you remember that? Yeah. And on top of the Berlin Wall, there, were, there was a mix of East Berliners and West Berliners. And soldiers. Soldiers who were not there to prevent people from crossing the border anymore, but soldiers who were there to applaud and to sing. And that's what these angels are doing. They're standing on a wall that God is breaking down, the dividing wall between heaven and earth, and they're singing. There's no longer a division between God and man because this child is making a way. This child is bringing peace so that for those who believe in him they can live before him forever and like us glorify him perfectly it's a joy that the angels said would be infectious a joy that filled the shepherds as they hurried off to bethlehem to confirm what the lord said and perhaps hold their savior the one that was born to them in their arms so what what does this mean to us until we remember that we are those untrustworthy, shady shepherds who receive the ultimate reprieve, the ultimate fear not, then that song won't have an infectious nature. That joy will not be ours. If we're the good people of Bethlehem that are at home and we're just safe from quasi-bad things and aren't the shepherds who are desperate for salvation, then we cannot sing this song. We cannot know this joy. Until we understand that the peacekeeping force was there for us, and that we are the shepherds. We are the ones whose hands are dirty. We are the ones who are the 'er ne'er-do-wells and the shady characters in God's sight. We cannot truly accept and experience the joy that they felt that night, that this was a Savior born to them. What is your assessment of yourself this morning? It's very easy to be a member of a church and show up at 9 o'clock during snow and ice and pat yourself on the back. We do that. And to look at people outside who really need the gospel... And say, they need it more than I. But later in Luke, Jesus is going to say, I came for the sick. And he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he said, I came for the sick. The well don't need a physician. And what he was saying is, until you see that you are not well, what I'm about to bring is of no benefit to you. And so every time we, as Doug said, we come, and it's plural, sins, we come before the Lord because our hearts are tarnished. Our hearts are stained. And we must come before him into his presence and remember the joy of our salvation that no matter what we have done, we can come and bow before his throne and receive the grace of Jesus Christ. And that should powerfully move our souls to praise into glory. Second question. <clears throat> Why did Mary respond by pondering? Verse 16. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as had been told them. You know, when my children were born, I took pictures back when, before we had cell phones that was on the 35 millimeters, you know, you, you, you took, and you actually took them to the store to get them developed. And we had an assortment of people that came by, our pastor, our friends from, from church, times seminary, and rejoiced with us, and held the baby, and every everyone held the baby, and we took the pictures, and, and we have, we, you probably all have scrapbooks of this at home. Well, I want you to realize that the first people that visited Mary weren't dignitaries, weren't family and friends; they were the shepherds. And I imagine the surprise on Joseph's face when a bunch of of, of uh, people from a, a biker gang, basically. Started barging through the doors. I bet he wanted to grab his staff and start hitting them because these were shepherds and they weren't very trustworthy. They couldn't even give a testimony in court. They were considered so untrustworthy. And yet, God sends them first to hold the baby. You got to imagine that they're probably a little uneasy at this point. And Mary's thinking, okay, God, this is your son. Who will be born to save the world, and yet you send shepherds. So she probably was pondering this why shepherds? And she realizes these are the kind of people that God wants to save. But there's more than that here. She's probably also thinking what's the Lord thinking? I mean, think about this. Here she was in her third trimester. And the Lord had allowed, through his providence, that a census would be taken. In her third trimester! You're going to make me travel? You're going to make us pick up our lives from Nazareth and move To this puny little backwater town of Bethlehem. What are you thinking? I mean, I'm your humble servant, may it be to me, as you've said, but really, what are you thinking? Joseph's leaving his livelihood, we're leaving family and friends. This is already a kind of semi-shameful birth here, considering that Joseph wasn't married to me when I became expectant with child. And here you are, you send us to a town where there's no room for us. All the doors are shut in our face, and we have to go to a barn, and your son has to be put in a manger. And I have to wrap him in cloths and... And then here are these really rough guys that are here to meet us. Are you just mad at me or something? Really, what's going on? I mean, I remember when when we moved down here, I graduated from seminary in 2001. And it was in December of 2001, and we went ahead and we moved to a church in Marietta to take a job as a youth pastor. So I had a daughter who was scheduled to be born in May, so we couldn't walk because that was the only time that the seminary ever did commencement. So we had to miss out on the commencement because our doctor said, do not travel during the third trimester because you never know, you might be traveling and then the baby might just decide to come. And here's God sending Mary and Joseph in the third trimester. Have you ever had those points in your life and you've said, God, what what are you thinking? Because if I were you and I were to do it the way I think you would do it, I would have done this for me and this for me and this for me and this for me. That would have been the easier way. Why this zigzag? Why this difficulty? Why do I have to experience this and that and the other. What are you you doing with my life? I mean, we don't say those things out loud in church, do we? (laughs) Because people will think that we're horrible people. But sometimes we think them, and sometimes they, they circulate in our hearts. God, why? Why did my job end? Why did you move me from my home and my family 200, 300, 400, 500 miles away. I remember when that happened to me. I I lost a job in Chattanooga where my family was and had to move back down here to Kennesaw to a church. In the middle of a recession, I had to sell my house and buy another one, and I'm thinking, God, what on earth are you thinking? Have I made you mad somehow? And yet, my son, who had been cleared of a kidney disorder, suddenly redeveloped that disorder. And his doctor, the number one pediatric nephrologist in the world, right here. That's just one, just one thing where God showed his wisdom to us. And here's the thing. You may not yet be to the point where you can see the why of what God has allowed in your life. But at times, he will give you a glimpse of the why and his wisdom and the reason. He does that for Mary. He does that for Joseph. Because here they're going... Bethlehem. Shepherds. Why Bethlehem? Why this little podunk town of Bethlehem? And why shepherds? Shepherds in Bethlehem. Shepherds in Bethlehem. Shepherd? Bethlehem? Now whether or not Mary was well-versed enough in Scripture, Joseph should have been. And one of the two of them would have realized They weren't far afield from God's plan and they weren't far afield from God's providence and they had not stepped outside of his will or his boundaries, but they were perfectly square, 100% bullseye in the middle of God's will. Why do I say that? Mark this passage to read later for your own encouragement. Micah 5, 2 through 4. Micah 5, 2 through 4. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you were small, podunk, among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who is ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely For then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. Why? Why this? Why that? Why the other thing? Oh. It's Romans 8. All things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And Mary has been called to his purpose. And you and I have been called for his purpose. And the shepherds were called for his purpose. And let me say, Mary was as fallen as we are, and I'm sure her heart groaned that she had to leave her house, leave her family, and she's probably turning all these things over in her heart, so when everything starts to make sense, she ponders it. And she doesn't just ponder it, she treasures it. God gives us moments where he makes it all make sense to us. Not in full, but in part, so that we will treasure those things in our heart. Because in treasuring them, it gives us confidence and hope that in the stuff that we have not yet answers for, the stuff that's still open-ended, the stuff that we're still struggling with and still trying to understand, God, why in the world did you do this? My heart's still grieving over this. My heart's still broken over this. Why did you do this? That in the smaller things, in the things that he's given us answer for, we can know the kind of God he is. He's the kind of God that brings all things to his glory. As, As broken as we might feel about them now, and his purpose his purpose is mighty. Have you ever been able to look back on some of the things that God has allowed in your life, things that have made you wonder if he's really paying attention? And then something happens that makes them all come together and to make sense in a way that human intellect could never have planned or figured out. I believe that's what's happening for Mary here what seems random, Bethlehem, shepherds, a manger for a bed, it all suddenly makes sense. God is giving them a powerful illustration of who Jesus will be, a memorable illustration of what he has called them to do and us to do, what he has sent Jesus for, to save his people, to shepherd them. Because he will be not the nefarious shady shepherd. He will be the good shepherd. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. When is the last time you looked at the intricate intricate plan of God? Of all he went through from the ancient of days, from days of old, to bring His plan of salvation to fulfillment. When is the last time you looked at your own story? What God did in your life? Who God brought into your life? Whether the fact that he put you in a believing family that raised you to believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and your testimony is, you know, there was never a day that I didn't know that Jesus was my Savior and Lord and I just walked right into a relationship with him. I was walking with my parents, Jesus on one side, me on the other, and then suddenly I was just walking with him hand in hand. What a beautiful story that is. The God of all providence was was sovereign over that. Just as much as he was sovereign over the person who never knew Jesus, grew up in a very dysfunctional home, and came across someone who shared with them the good news that was for them, that brought them great joy. Which one of those is your story? Or has God written that story for you? If, you? if he hasn't, it can be your story today. And you can look back and you can say, you know what? I came at nine o'clock in the snow and the ice, not knowing what to expect. Mostly here to hear Mac Powell. But I know that God sent Jesus for me. Today, your story can begin If you're here and God has already written that story for you, you can rejoice because he was sovereign over it all, not only to call someone whose hands were dirty like the shepherds, but to arrange it all in a perfect plan to bring you to Jesus Christ and have you bow your knee before him as Savior and Lord. And whatever else it is that he has to work out in our lives that we're still not settled on, You can trust in the nature and the character of the God who brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at just the right moment, in Jesus, at just the right point in history to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we come before you this morning thinking we have clean hands on our own, apart from Jesus, may you bring us upon our knees and may we be so afraid at the idea that we'll stand before you without the clothing of Jesus before us, without the robes of his righteousness, that we stand in shepherd's robes before you and we are deserving of wrath. But having seen Jesus and all his goodness and knowing that he is the only salvation that we have and the only righteousness that we can claim before you, standing in his robes, may we rejoice because you will never Ever bring your army of angels of wrath upon us at all because we stand before you as righteous not because of what we've done because of what that babe in bethlehem did for us he grew up perfect and righteous and then shed his blood for us may that story never become old May our story of being brought to you never become an old and trite. May you restore us by your spirit the joy of our salvation. And may we never hear the words of Luke 2 and say, meh, again. May we say, praise Jesus for saving one like me. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.